Good morning. Please open your Bible, if you have one, to Luke 14, or you can turn it on. Turn your Nowadays, we can turn our Bibles on. That's an odd development of technology. Um, but please, however you get there. And if you don't have either of those, on the back of the insert is the text for this morning, Luke 14. And we'll be studying verses 1 through 25, part 2. We looked at the first half of this text last week. But I'd like to read it to begin with in its entirety. Uh, Luke 14, 1 through um, 20, actually 24. So let's begin. This is the word of God. Let's see what the Lord has for us in his word this morning. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will be, begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those reclining at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. And so last week, when we began to study this, um, we saw that... It begins with a familiar enough scene in Luke, a Sabbath controversy, a Sabbath healing, a dinner fellowship, dinner discourse, all very common themes in Luke. And the commonality ends after the healing of the man with dropsy. As Jesus moves into three speeches, three teachings, as it were, to his host and the guests, he's the guest of a leader of the Pharisees. And the other guests are scribes, lawyers, and other Pharisees. It's a Sabbath day. Jesus has likely just been teaching in their synagogues. You know, that was his custom. And we also looked and noted how this invitation, while it may seem odd, because the last time we checked in on the Pharisees, they were hunting and looking for ways to trap him. Well, that's what this is, a trap. 
They invited Jesus. He was invited, I believe, to to trap him. We see that in verse 1. They were watching him carefully. And I think most likely the man with dropsy was, was there as a plant, invited specifically to see what Jesus would do, to see whether he would heal. And Jesus demonstrates his command of the Scripture. He demonstrates his understanding of the Sabbath, and he silences them and puts them to shame. And so even though he's in the house of the teachers of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, at their silence to his final question, verse 6, they could not reply to these things, he begins teaching. And even though they were watching him carefully, there's an irony here in verse 7, he begins to notice something about them. And we looked at how the guests were sort of playing musical chairs as they were determined to sit in the seat of most honor that they could afford. But that's tricky when you've got other honorable people here. You've got to do the mental math and figure out, okay, he's here and he's here. And so Jesus is watching this foolish, pathetic um, work on the part of these Pharisees and scribes. They're trying to do the math. And he says to them, look, you got it all wrong. You're running the risk of being shamed publicly. Why not sit in the low seat? Why not, why, not, why not receive honor? You can't take honor. Honor must be given. And then he gives them this kingdom principle. Whoever exalts himself, verse 11, will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisees are very much concerned with honor and esteem and respect being recognized. In fact, back in chapter 11, Jesus pronounced that as one of the woes. In chapter 11, when he was at the last dinner party of a Pharisee, he said in verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. And if you think back a little further with me, Jesus' great sermon, the most extensive teaching in Luke in one place, the Sermon on the Plain, it begins... But the blessings pronounced not upon the proud, but upon the humble. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The Pharisees have it wrong. What Luke is doing is showing us why they've rejected Jesus. Remember, chapter 13 ended with Jesus pronouncing the great, terrible judgment on Jerusalem. Your house is left to you. Do you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? So Jesus has now told the reader, told us, Israel will in fact reject him. But now we're getting to see why. In fact, that's what this is about this morning as we study an open invitation. And it's in this focus, honor and shame. You You want the honorable seat, You want as much honor as can be given to you in front of men. That's the assumption. And likewise, the host who Jesus begins to instruct is working on the same axis. He wants honor. He wants glory. He wants recognition. He wants reciprocity. And so Jesus will tell him in our first point here how to be a truly blessed host. How to be a truly blessed host. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus is willing to assume, and in many of his arguments, you'll get this, that we want what's in our own best interest. The Bible, when it calls us to self-denial, is never calling us to self-denial as an end in itself. The logic of the Bible, as we'll see, is to deny yourself something now so you can have something better later. And ultimately, that logic is appealing, actually, to your desire for self-interest. You want a blessing. The last... The last parable assumes I want honor from people. Why don't you do this? Humble yourself. Have it given to you instead of looking like the jerk who's trying to take it. You can get real honor. Why don't you humble yourself now and let God exalt you? That's all playing upon the logic that I, I do want ultimate honor and glory and, and, and these things from God. And what Jesus is saying, here's, here's the right way to get it. Don't set your sights too low. It's the same thing here. In fact, there's great similarities between the instruction he gives the, uh, um, about the wedding feast with those who are attended with him and what he says to the, um, the host. In fact, you'll notice the format follows. When you're doing da-da-da-da-da, don't da-da-da-da-da, lest da-da-da-da-da, but when you da-da-da-da-da, so that da-da-da-da-da, because you got it, da-da-da-da-da. Um, 
No, and you'll see that, that format here. In fact, it's easily broken down into looking at what not to do and what to do. What not to do and what to do. He said to the man, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you are repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is not giving instructions here simply for formal feasts. In fact, the words in Greek, when you give a dinner, um, and later when you invite them to um, a feast, are, are Greek words for the morning meal, the evening meal. This is a general principle of hospitality, a general principle not simply for formal of occasions, but this is, this is generally applied. And what, what are we not to do? And the logic is really simple. Do not invite those who can repay you. Do not invite those who can repay you, lest you only receive temporal blessings. Do not invite those who can repay you, lest you only receive temporal blessings. I want you to get the logic here. Jesus is saying you're setting your sights too low. If all you're looking for is what you can get now, what you can get here and now in this life, in this world, you're missing out on the big blessings. So do not invite those who can repay you. And again, this is consistent with what Jesus has been teaching all along. Turn, turn back to chapter 6 of Luke, um, the great sermon on the plain. And look at his teaching to his disciples. As soon as he ends the Beatitudes, right, I'm in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And you could add in here, and if you invite people over to dinner, you expect to invite you back, what good is that to you? It's the same principle going through. So what we learn is the, the Pharisees caught up in honor and glory. When you choose your guest list, you have two things in mind. One, you want notable Famous, powerful, dignified people, because that bestows honor on you, right? I think that's possibly why Jesus is there. He certainly is the most popular and famous teacher. We've just seen at the beginning of chapter 12, the crowds are so great. People are being trampled. So you get, you get this celebrity to your house. The other, the other principle you consider when you're making your invitation list is, uh, well, Rabbi so-and-so, he's got a really excellent cook, and he's got a, a great house for banquets. And if I invite him, well, I'm sure in turn he'll invite me. And so there's this sort of give and take. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. The, the reciprocity. And those appear to be the two axes upon which the host and the Pharisees like him would, would choose their guest list. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. And, and I love Jesus' reason and argument. Yet he doesn't Take it on as wickedness and sin. I think you, we could do that. You could talk about how you're showing favoritism and partiality. You're despising the poor. You're despising the lowly. Don't you remember you were slaves in Egypt? Jesus could do all of that. He doesn't. He appeals to this man's desire for self-interest. You, don't. It's, it's like telling the child, and Dave now knows what a ring pop is. So, ooh, there we go. Someone he now knows he has a direct object lesson. Excellent. Um, I think a bunch of us had the same idea. I, I meant to do the same thing, but others have stood in the gap where I failed. Um, it's like telling the child, don't, don't, don't spoil your appetite with that candy. There's a, a three-course meal coming. Gourmet. It's, it's, it's the delayed gratification. Don't, don't settle for piddling little I get invited back to dinners. You can have eternal blessings at the resurrection. That's the logic. Jesus is putting carrot in front of him, not stick. The, the stick's going to come in the next parable. But here it's all carrot. 
Do not invite those who can repay you. Why? You're only going to receive temporal, now, blessings at most. You, you, you have your reward. Turn over to the chapter 16. A, a familiar parable, the rich man Lazarus. And when, the, when the rich man in hell cries out to Abraham, what is Abraham's response? Verse 25. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. And now he's being comforted here. You are in anguish. Make no mistake, you don't want your blessings here and now. You don't want to trade eternal blessings for immediate blessings. You don't want to do that. And so Jesus tells them what not to do. Don't invite those who can repay you lest you only receive temporal blessings. So what should you do? Here it's invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And why? Because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So what not to do? Don't just invite people who can repay you. What should you do? Invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind. In fact, the Greek word underlying our concept of hospitality literally means a lover of strangers or aliens. So uh, when you're having your friends and people you know over, technically you're really not doing hospitality. You're not doing anything bad. But the biblical concept behind hospitality is, to, is the love of the stranger. It's the love of the sojourner. It's the love of the person you don't know terribly well. And, and opening yourself up, opening your home up to them. Um, and so Jesus here says something that would be radically shocking to this Pharisee, this leader of the Pharisees. In a, in a system, in a culture where you get as much honor as you can, and, and you, you exalt yourself as much as you can, they would view it as a shame. They would view it as... as uh, embarrassing to have your great dinner banquet um, populated by the nothings and the nobodies, the poor. They can't ever repay you. They can't, they can't do anything back to you. They're not going to help your prestige or the crippled, you know, um, the lame or the blind. These are the people who, in, in, in the Pharisees' viewpoint, probably it's their fault they're in their condition. According to the Pharisees, we've already seen that. Um, when they ask about the Tower of Siloam, even Jesus' disciples, when they see the man born blind, whose who's sin was it his parents, or maybe he in utero did something. And that's their system. So these would be people who, who would be looked down upon. These are the outcasts, the nothings and the nobodies. And Jesus says, no, you want to invite them. And it's absolutely radical, revolutionary, countercultural for them. And it gives a powerful motive. Because you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So why, why would I give up my honor now? Why would I invite reproach and the snickers and the mocking of my fellow Pharisees? Why would I do this? Well, Jesus says, because there's a bigger blessing. There's a much bigger blessing. You can be repaid at the resurrection of the just precisely because these people cannot repay you now. Now that reference to the resurrection of the just, one of the things that set the Pharisees apart from their counterparts, the Sadducees, we're told this repeatedly in the, the Gospels, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. That's, of course, why they were sad, you see? And you won't forget it, though. You won't forget it. Um, well, the Pharisees were the literalists. They were the strict interpretationists, and they knew that Daniel, among other, among other passages, Daniel 12, 2, promised that many who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. They understood that when the age ends, when the Messiah comes, the age is drawn to a close, there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. And so Jesus is playing into one of their great hopes. And when that day comes, he's saying, when you are raised to life, then you will be repaid. And this, this, is, this combining of notions of, of a feast and the resurrection is, is something that's done in these scriptures. Turn, turn with me to Isaiah 25, one of many passages where, where the messianic age and the resurrection is, is depicted in feasting language. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. 
passages these Pharisees, these lawyers be very well acquainted with. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away every tear from all their faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day behold this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord we have waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation so Isaiah says there's a day coming where death will be swallowed up in victory where God will save his people and, and it will be a great feast God invites his people too. I, I think, in fact, that's part of how this, this um, unnamed person who speaks up tips off into referencing this feast. Because Jesus, as you'll note, says he'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table heard him say these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, this is because they, they understood the connection between these things. When will God's kingdom come? If you're reading Daniel, the, the, there's a great tribulation, there's a resurrection, and then there's a kingdom. And so they understand these are, are, are co-relative events. And perhaps to change the subject is getting a little awkward, but I think more likely to disagree with Jesus, this man speaks up. But Jesus has just told the host is God is only going to reward, God is only going to bless those who humble themselves, those who show kindness and generosity, those who are not self-seeking. Those are the ones God will honor at the resurrection of the just. Those are the ones who will be feasting at God's great banquet. One of the Pharisees speaks up and says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It sounds almost like a toast, perhaps. But I, but I don't think this is just some cheerful do-gooder. Rather, I think what he's saying is, regardless, Jesus, we're all going to be there. Regardless, Jesus. I mean, you can almost picture the other Pharisees saying amen or, or you know, l'chaim or whatever it, as, as he makes this, this blessing. We're all going to be there, they're assuming. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Again, not an unusual occurrence in Luke. Jesus is teaching, someone speaks up, and then Jesus using that for his further teaching. But now Jesus brings out the stick. And he has to kindly, this is the most loving thing he can do, when you're dealing with people who are self-deceived, when you're dealing with people caught up in false religion, when you're dealing with people who are proud, self-righteous, and blind, the loving thing to do is Jesus is full of love and grace and truth. The loving thing to do is you gotta, you got to help them see that they're blind. you got to show them that they're wrong. Jesus does not gather together with the Pharisees and say, well, you know, we all worship God in our own different way, but it's okay. This, this parable is meant to strip them of their security, to strip them of their confidence, to humble them, to call them to repentance. Let's, let's read the parable of the great banquet. Pick it up in verse 16. He said, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent out a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I cannot go. I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came, reported these things to his master. When the master of the house began to get, became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my banquet. 
So this is a parable. It's the most extensive teaching Jesus has in this section. And what I'd like to do is walk through the parable and understand the parable itself. And you may have a pretty good idea of what the parable means. Because remember, a parable is a story that you lay down alongside of parallel to truth. And then as you see them line up, you begin to draw truth and inferences from one to the other. Now, when we get to the end, Jesus will make it clear who's who, who's in what role, and what this means. But let's just go through it first, understanding the parable as a story in and of itself. Okay? So the parable of the great banquet, and the, the, the plot of the parable takes four points, pretty straightforward. There's invitation, excuses, exclusion, inclusion, and exclusion. Invitation, excuses, inclusion, exclusion. So let's just look at invitation. Now, this is a great banquet. Now, what Jesus is at right now is a Sabbath meal. It's formal enough for there to be a seating of importance. But this is something that would outstrip that by far. We see that by Jesus referencing that it is a great banquet and that many are invited. This would be the height of the social season in Israel. Again, you get honor by being invited Remember, because you want to invite the honorable. You want to invite the, the people who are to do. And so when a great man throws a great feast and you get invited, it gives you honor. So this is a great banquet. And the pattern here is a two-step approach to invitation. We're not really used to that. We usually just get the one you know, request. You get the RSVP form in the mail or whatever. But we understand we got even from examples in Scripture as in um, Esther, that you'd first send out a general invitation, especially if the feast and the day was not absolutely set in stone. Maybe you're setting up a feast for the end of harvest. So you'd invite people to this harvest celebration, but you don't know exactly on what day your workers will get done harvesting. Or maybe you're about to host an important guest, and you know he's arriving sometime soon, but would you come and join us at the feast to celebrate this important guest, and we'll let you know as soon as he gets here. Or probably the most familiar example in the Bible would be a wedding right? Because the bridegroom goes away and he prepares and there's parables about we don't exactly know when the bridegroom is coming back, but when he does, we need to be ready. So there's a two-step invitation going on. And what's obvious is that these people who are invited accepted the request. If they didn't accept the first invitation, there's no point in having them say, please excuse me. They just say, I already said no. So at the first round of this invitation, this great man, inviting to his great feast, many, sends out the invitation, and it is received. It is accepted. These people agree. We will come. We will come to your feast. And then at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, this should be good news. You think about being excited about going to some event, whether it be a dinner or a banquet, a wedding feast, and now it's time to go. This should be good news. But actually, we read next the excuses. That's the invitation. Then we have the excuses. They all are like all. That's shocking, all. And we're only going to get a sample of their excuses. But all of them began to make excuses. I mean, and this is, this, is, this is the part of the story that doesn't make any sense. Why would they do this? But they do. The first said, and and the excuses are pathetic and flimsy. It's not as though there are good excuses. I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Oh, as if you never set eyes on this field before you bought it. And it's still going to be there tomorrow. You can go look at the patch of dirt tomorrow. This is is a pathetic pathetic excuse. A great high feast. I I can't go. Sorry. I I bought a piece of land. I got to go take, I got to go look at some dirt. I can't go. The next excuse. Um, Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I must go examine them. Oh, like you didn't go examine them or send someone to examine them first. Come on. Like that can't wait till tomorrow. The last excuse is the only one that even seems remotely plausible. Um, The last said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. But but, I'm not sure why you're laughing, but okay. Uh, Now, This guy's not on his honeymoon because he's able to give the excuse, right? So it's not as though, like, no, seriously, I just got married last night, I can't come. What he's saying is, I'm newly married. 
I can't come. I mean, and the law of Israel gave in the first year of marriage an, an exemption for men from military service. Deuteronomy 24.5, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. But this is precisely the type of thing you'd think you'd bring your new wife to to make her happy. It's a feast. It's a gala. It's, it's a high event of joy and sumptuous food. Now, this makes no sense at all either. And what we get from these three sample excuses, because remember, they all, they all make excuses, is that they fall along two lines. Point one, they were more concerned about their possessions. I got a field I need to go look at. I got oxen I got to go look at. They were more concerned about their possessions. And the second, they're more concerned about their relationships. Um, people, my wife that I just got. And what they do is they, they hugely insult and dishonor the master. That's the next point. They insult and dishonor the master. I mean, you know the, the feeling when you invite someone for dinner and you clean the house and you make the, the special meal and you set the table. And then at the last minute, someone drops out. You know the disappointment you feel. Have you ever had someone do that and then you caught, the, you caught them in the fact that they actually just got a better offer? And how insulted and annoyed you feel? I mean, there's something actually legitimate there. Because they've dishonored you. And, and these people who are invited to this feast are dishonoring. And this is important, because remember, Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees and the scribes along the access of honor and shame to them. And here what he's pointing out is, do you see the immense dishonor they do to this master? If that's not... Implicitly clear just from that, we learn in the next sentence that, that he gets angry. He, he picks up on it. He's aware of the dishonor shown to him. And now we move from excuses to inclusion. Inclusion. So the servants came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry. The Pharisees would get that. They would understand that. that that's no surprise. The shocking thing is that everyone invited comes up with some lame excuse and doesn't show up. It's not at all shocking that this great man, this master throwing this great feast, is, is offended by the, the snub that is given to him. So what's he going to do? Is he going to cancel his feast? Because after all, no one's showing up. Nope. We're, we're going to find some other people to feast. And we also learn something about the heart of this man, his generosity. And so he tells the, the servant... Go out quickly. I think quickly because it's time for the feast. We're not postponing this another day. Go now and get people. There's a sense of urgency. Quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. That list sound familiar? Because it's word for word, verse 13. Who does Jesus tell the host to invite? The poor, crippled, the lame, and the blind. I think at least his ears perked up at this point. The master of this feast is inviting the very people this Pharisee would not have invited, and Jesus told him, you ought to invite. And so he, he has the servant quickly go and bring them in. And the servant said to him, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to his servant, go into the highways and hedges and compel the people to come in for my house shall be filled. This master is determined to have a full, presumably rejoicing, delightful feast. There's still room? No, no, no. Go out and get more. So now we get the next level out. First, it's inviting the people from, from the streets in the town. Now we're going outside of the city. He invites those outside the city in the highways. And, and these people would be even lower in the Jewish estimation. At least the first group of people lived in the city. But who knows what types of people live out in the highways, the brothels that are out there, the highwaymen out there. Ugh, one shudders to think. And the master goes out and gets them. And, and the emphasis here is, again, even less respectable in the Pharisees' understanding. And bring them in. So he invites those outside the city and the highways. And then we get to the, the, the end of this parable, the exclusion. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Now, 
Here is where grammar is very important. For those of you with ESV Bibles, the ESV very helpfully has a little footnote next to the word you in verse 24. And I'm going to suggest to you it is crucial. What the footnote says is the you here is plural. The you here is plural. So understand what Jesus is saying in the last line, accurately translated, is for I tell you all. None of those men who are invited shall taste of my banquet. Except, this, this then gives us a further insight, because what we were seeing before was Jesus telling the story, putting words in the master's mouth, right? So we saw the master say in verse 23, the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in for my house to be filled. So who's the master talking to in verse 23? A servant, one person, right? So then what we know in verse 24 is that when Jesus says, for I tell you all, the parable's done, and he is no longer putting words in the master's mouth. This is dramatic. This is shocking. And this this makes the application crystal clear. Jesus says, "Let let me tell you a story. Not so fast. Everyone, blessed is everyone who'll eat bread in the kingdom. Well, not so fast. Let me tell you a story about a man. And then at the end of the story, he looks them in the eye and says, I say to you all, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Who's the my there? It's Jesus, isn't it? So listen to this story. And all of a sudden at the end, you can just picture Jesus looking at them. Let me, let me make something clear to you. None of people like this are going to taste my banquet. And so now we know who the roles are. Whose banquet is this? It's Jesus' banquet. Who are the people originally invited? It's the Pharisees. Okay, so let's go back through and work through this and see what it means. And here's, I think, where we get to understand it clearly. So there was an invitation. There was an invitation sent out to Israel. God had invited Israel, and by virtue of them being the religious leaders, these Pharisees representing that, God invited Israel into his kingdom, into his banquet. We we saw passages in Isaiah 25 and others where God did that. They entered into a covenant with God at Sinai where they accepted the invitation and said, yes, yes, we will come. Yes, we will come to your banquet, Lord. Sounds good, right? The first invitation was sent out. And then... John the Baptist appears, Jesus before him, and what's the message? It's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's time for the feast. What should have been the best news, what should have been just, woohoo, finally, they began to make excuses. Excuses like, this, this, this man has a demon. Excuses like, John the Baptist, kind of creepy. He wears the, the cloak, the, the camel hair. He's locusts. Yeah, I don't, yeah. And then Jesus comes, ooh, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a wine bibber and a glutton. Ooh. Jesus rebuked that in chapter 7 of Luke. They, those who had originally accepted God's invitation, when the messenger came to say, it's now, now's the time, they, they began to make excuses. And what Jesus is pointing out is the incredible dishonor, insult, and snub they are giving to God. God sent his son who came and did nothing but love and bless and help these people. He, he raised a dead son for a mother. He healed. He fed. They didn't want him. I got better things to do. Sorry, Lord, can't come to your feast. I'm too busy figuring out which seat I'm going to sit in. Sorry, Lord, can't come to your feast. I'm too busy working on my invitation list for my next banquet. Too busy chasing honor. Because what were the excuses based around? They cared about their possessions. They cared about earthly human relationships. What do we learn about the Pharisees? We've already heard Jesus' stinging rebuke in chapter 11. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues. And in two chapters, in Luke 16, 14, we're going to read the Pharisees who were lovers of money. What are the two big things that single the Pharisees out for problems? They love honor and respect and what people think of them, and they love money. These, these excuses 
are right along those lines. It's also, I hope you see, tying together Jesus' larger teaching in this section. Turn back to chapter 12. When Jesus begins to publicly oppose the Pharisees, which is what he does in 12.1, remember the last dinner party at a Pharisee's house ended with Jesus emptying both barrels. Woe, 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 woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you lawyers. And then with the end result, the end of 11, verse 53, when he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began pressing him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So they've just upped their game to trap him. This dinner party, I've suggested, was exactly one of those things, a trap. Jesus, on his part, now begins to publicly teach against them in 12.1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then what types of warnings does Jesus give his would-be disciples? Well, the very first one, is to beware the danger of of caring what men think about you more than God. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. I warn you who to fear, fear him who has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, to say fear him. Verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What's the very first warning? You guys need to count the cost and understand. I expect you to care more about what I think, to fear me and my Father more than you fear what they think of them. And then what's the very next thing Jesus goes to when he teaches them? Verse 15, he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Jesus' instructions and warnings to his would-be disciples follow these same two lines. Be careful that you don't start loving your stuff more than me. Be careful you don't Start getting so distracted with the fields you bought, the oxen you bought, that you miss out on the feast. So what Jesus exposes in the Pharisees in their hearts is precisely, precisely the same lines he's been speaking along to his disciples. There's nothing new here. There's this continuity and consistency in Luke and in Jesus' message. Why do these people not come to the banquet? What keeps them from attending? They, they willfully choose not to attend. They're too busy about stuff. They're too busy about human relationships and what people, you know, about, about the fear of man, I think is the biblical term. So then that leads to the inclusion. Well, what does that mean in the parable? Well, you see two waves, right? The master sends out for the, for the lame, the poor, the crippled, and the blind. Well, this is what Jesus has been doing all along. You remember back in chapter 4 when Jesus shows up to his hometown, he opens up Isaiah 61 and he reads it. What does he read? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus saying, this is, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm doing. What is that? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now they want to kill him when he's done this because he, he makes it clear to them in his hometown and that's you guys. And again, pride. You have to humble yourself. <laughs> the master is inviting the poor, the lame, the blind. But if you won't recognize yourself as that, you're not going to accept the invitation. Jesus has been inviting the poor, the oppressed, the blind. And from the beginning, he's been grumbling with them. Look at, look at how chapter 15 begins. Well, actually, before we look at 15, look at where we go to very next. Next week, we'll pick it up in 25, right? And... Jesus is now turning to the crowds. I would suggest to you that in the metaphor of this parable, here is Jesus in verse 25 beginning to invite, he's been doing it all along, but here's Jesus inviting the lame, the poor, the blind. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own mother, father, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus' first demand of would-be disciples? You care about me and my relationship with you more than any human relationship. Notice the connection of wife in verse 26. You're not going to let your love for your wife stop you coming after me. You have to choose. And then how does it end? Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce 
all that he has, all his fields, all his oxen, cannot be my disciple. He's got, see, he's going to invite the crowds, the hoi polloi. It's the same, same message, same standard, same expectation. And then in 15.1, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They might as well say, this man invites sinners to his banquet. Precisely. You better believe he does. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are we to make of those who are invited who are out in the highways? Well, I don't think it would be clear to Luke's readers yet, but I think that if we continue studying through Luke, and if we were to go into Acts, it would become clear that as, as much as the lowly of the lowly of Israel were thronging to Jesus, God's invitation to his banquet is far greater, far broader. His mercies are far more wonderful than we would have expected. I think this is a veiled reference to the inclusion of the Gentiles. I think, I think that's us. I think we, we are the people in the highways. We are the people who are far off. And so Jesus says in response to this rejection, this is exactly what we get in, in Paul's whole logic in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because Israel rejected their Messiah, God's grace has opened up to us in the gospel to the Gentiles. That God will fill his banquet hall. God's not out to save just a few people. He wants it full. And and notice the word there for compel. Compel them to come in. And the story is because this is too good to be true. And I can't repay him. And maybe this is a trap. Maybe this is a setup. No, 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 no. Come in, come in. Now, ironically, um, this is the verse that from the Latin Vulgate that was used to justify the Inquisition. Because uh, Jerome, when he translated it, um, allowed it to be interpreted as torment or torture. It's not that at all. This is, this is pleading. This is begging. This is 2 Corinthians 5. We implore you, God making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God for Christ's sake. In fact, this is exactly the type of work the Griffiths do, going out to the city, inviting. Please, it's, it's urgent, it's fast. It's here. We don't have lots of time. Please, please come to the banquet. This is, it's in fact, what I'm doing at this very moment. Extending God's invitation to you. That even though you're a nothing and a nobody, even though you live outside the city, even though you're not one of these high-to-do Pharisees, God is inviting people like us to his banquet. He's inviting us to his feast. Well, what, what feast is that? Well, Revelation 19 knows of a feast. And it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the Pharisees would not heed this invitation because they were too proud. They would not recognize themselves as the poor and the blind and the crippled, the lame. But perhaps you will. This is, again, I want you to see the unity in Luke. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. This is the entrance, the coming to faith. These are the hard attitudes that accompany faith in Christ. He will give you food without cost. He will, he will lavish his love and his kindness upon you. We're going we're to see that in chapter 15 in, in the pictures of God's joy over repentant sinners culminating in the prodigal son who when he returns home empty-handed gets given a new cloak and a ring and shoes and a feast is thrown in his honor. So there's this wonderful open invitation to us all. This wonderful, come, come to God. Compelling, please come. Please come to God's feast. Please turn from whatever else you think it is that's so important. Your stuff, your relationship. Turn from all of it. Turn to Him in faith. Trust Him. Come, come eat and drink and be fed from Christ. This is, after all, His banquet. But there's also a warning here, isn't there? We learn as we watch what is said to the Pharisees. Because for those who say, yes, I'll come, and then no, I won't. There's no mercy. There's no pity. They are shut outside. Just like Jesus said in chapter 13. Turn back to chapter 13. Right? 
is the same picture we saw there. Verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will enter to seek, will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. And he'll answer, I do not know where you come from. And they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. All you workers of evil, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. There's that feast in the kingdom. And he's, and he's warning those people, if you ever find yourself shut out, there is no getting back in. So God has offered this invitation. He has he sent out far and wide. And our missionaries are those who go as, as the servants of the master, inviting, pleading, come, come, come in, come in. But if you, if you either are unwilling to humble yourself or recognize your need, or if you think, i got too much stuff to worry about now, I'll do it later, be warned. There may come a day where you knock on that door and it will not open to you. Now, this is a warning here. Don't, don't offend God in this way by turning your nose up at Him, being too good for His banquet, for His feast. This is a feast that was paid for by the blood of His Son. Now hear God's, hear God's invitation. Receive it. Come, feast, sup, rejoice, and inherit the kingdom. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we, we rejoice that you have invited the likes of us. Not many wise. Not many honorable. Not many highly esteemed. And yet you have set your love upon us. You have called us. You have implored and pleaded with us through your Spirit. You have drawn us. And we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward with great joy to that feast to come, that celebration of fellowship and joy. And so, Lord, we, we don't want to be those who would appear to accept and then reject, Lord. So give us humble hearts Guard us from the love of possessions and things. Guard us from the love of this world that we might become so distracted we no longer heed your call. Guard us from, from overvaluing what people think of us and the respect we hunger for and demand that we, we begin to ignore your call. Oh, Lord God, um, blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom. Lord, we pray that by your grace, we would be such as some of those. In Jesus' name, amen.